On this episode of the Million Dollar Mortgage Experience, John Maddox is joined by CEO and President of Endeavor Bank, Dan Yates and Stephen Sefton. Endeavor Bank is the first FDIC chartered bank to be established since the crash with a focus on thinking locally in San Diego. The three discuss how inverted yield curves suggest a correction, vaping and its effect on the Safe Banking Act, politics, and much more. Welcome to the Million Dollar Mortgage Experience Podcast. Listen in as CEO John Maddox of Fund Loans reveals tips, secrets, and origination ideas to fill your pipeline with million dollar opportunities. Welcome to the show. We're here with Dan Yates and Steve Sext. <laughs> Steve Sefton. So welcome to the show, guys. Good morning. All right. So Endeavor Bank, brand new bank. Well, not necessarily brand new, but very new. Um, you guys were the first FDIC chartered bank. Is that correct to say? Uh, it's since the crash? Yeah, the first one in San Diego County in over 10 years and probably one of a handful in the whole country. That's great. It's so. actually approaching 12 years now, Dan. That's right. Wow. So you, but you guys have been in this business a long time. I, I know not just from the gray hair, but because I, I've heard and I've, we, we know each other. So tell us a little background about how, how and why you wanted to start this bank. So 40 years for me in the business. And I'm a, now, I guess, technically a serial entrepreneur. Awesome. Back in the early 2000s, I started a bank here in San Diego called Regents. Okay. 12 years in, uh, we sold that bank to Grand Point. And uh, Steve joined us as the uh, successor CEO and ran it for five years. And I think both of us saw over time that the uh, consolidation of local banks had reached a point where there was a huge hole in the market. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to bring a new bank back to San Diego, first time in, like you said, over a decade. Mm -hmm. And so far, we've uh, found that that hole was real because the bank's growth has been quite explosive since we launched about 19 months ago. That's great. So you guys are focused on business owners, right? And entrepreneurs and things like that? Right. Yeah. We, we focused what we call on operating companies, mm -hmm. um, businesses that make a product, uh, sell a product, distribute a product, business to business service. We like to say low end of 5 million in sales up to 75 million in sales. But the common quality for all of pretty much all of our clients is that they're owner managed. The, mm -hmm. the person that's the president, CEO of the business started the business or is the second or third generation of the business. It's not a private equity. It's not a venture backed company. We're playing out of position with, with that market. Uh, we're so mostly small to mid-sized companies and correct and local or some of them, you know, all, all States or are they just mo mostly local companies or. I would say the vast majority here in San Diego County with a few in Los Angeles and Orange County. Okay. Yeah. In fact, we're in a, in a capital raise, so I had to go back and, and verify all the numbers. Better than 95% of all of our clients are Southern California based. That's, oh, wow. Uh, that's, that's local. Uh, so talk to me about, you know, you guys have seen a lot of cycles, right? I mean, 40 years, there's at least been three, two, three cycles, right? Um, we, we, you know, the crash was tough, you know, and, and, and like we said, there was not many new banks, you know, until 18 months ago. Um, and now there's a research kind of, a, you know, a, a new, uh, there's a resurgence of banks coming back. So how, how many banks have come back since the crash? You said a handful. So after the last recession, um, a lot of banks failed in particularly states like Georgia. Yep. And the FDIC changed the rules to make it unattractive for investors to form a new bank. When enough years went by and they looked at the data, what they realized is that we hurt the small business community. 
Yeah. So the FDIC reverted back to the old rules, started going on speeches around the country, encouraging investors to come together. Mm-hmm. We answered the call. And with the uh, new rules, we've had probably about 10 banks nationwide that have formed on okay. average, somewhere in that neighborhood. Okay. But it's still a trickle compared to uh, years past when you might find 10 in San Diego alone versus mm-hmm. 10 the whole country. So why would, uh, say, an entrepreneur uh, want, who, who's starting a new company come to a, a new bank versus, say, like a Wells or Chase, something like that? Well, you just, you just ask the question, what's the value proposition? Right. Why Endeavor Bank? And what we are finding and what we, Dan and I have known all, our, all of our careers is business owners want to have a partner in the sense of uh, an advisory board member. Mm-hmm. And in the olden days, back in the 50s, 60s, many decades ago, business owners didn't make business decisions without sitting around the table over breaking bread with their their bankers, their bankers, their advisory board member. And the bank was part of that conversation. We've always played that role with our clients. And the big banks, as they get more and more uh, technology driven, they're getting further and further away, in our opinion, in our experience from the client. We're getting closer and closer. We continue to maintain that relationship. And business owners, really, that resonates with them. That's very interesting because a lot of business businesses they they don't know. I mean, they don't know what to do. They're they're in certain areas. Maybe the entrepreneurs really skilled in one area, right? You know, and then that's why they have passion towards this new business they're starting. And then uh, to get to get finance or to get you know money capital for their business, they need they need help and they need advisors. And I mean, I can't imagine a Chase or Wells being you know there for them. And you know, because they have so many clients. Versus, I mean, I know you guys have quite a bit of clients, but uh, and customers, but but you know, the number of customers is so much less compared to a big five bank, right? You know, like a Chase. So you have you have more you have more bandwidth to help an entrepreneur than say someone they have access to the present CEO versus you know you can't get Diamond on the phone, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, when you get into the value proposition, you could you could go on for hours. But one of the things we don't talk a lot about is local banks nationwide keep the money in the community. Yep. So all the deposits we bring in, we lend back out to support our economy here, which helps every local business. Right. And so there's a trend now for, I think San Diego is no exception, to support local businesses, whether mm-hmm. it's banking or the local coffee shop or the hardware store, because I think we recognize that we're employing those individuals in our companies. We're putting that money back to work and all ships rise. So there's a there's a passion now to keep it local, mm-hmm. and on top of all the other good business reasons, that's a that's a very compelling uh, bell to ring. Yeah, I like that because you know you think of companies like Amazon and these big, huge companies, and they're they they were putting out of business these small bookstores, these other little retailers, and then but now you are seeing, and I, I think in Forbes it, it was talking about the you know the uh, rise of the the gig economy the side hustle, all these people starting little side businesses. And, and then, you know, I'm sure there's more and more trends going towards the local businesses and they need, they need banks like you guys. There's a lot written today about what millennials want from their banks. And everyone assumes they want self-service, yep. do it online, do it through technology. But in your business and in ours, when there's an important financial decision, yep. people want to sit down and have a conversation face to face. Yeah. And it may be buying a home, it may be buying a business, selling the company. And if you can take the time to really get to know them on an individual, personal level, mm-hmm. and you have the experience you can bring to it. Mm-hmm. And in the case of Steve and myself, we can make the decisions on the spot. 
There's mm-hmm. no faceless loan committee in some faraway city. Yeah, All of those become very compelling when you're faced with tough decisions or important decisions in your financial life. Right. And that's not to say that technology isn't important. I mean, right. what we've created is the, the merger or the marrying of, of the highest level of technology that you can do with banking and mm-hmm. financial services <laughs> together with this human element. And it creates a, a real desirable mix that we're finding that's resonating just really well. Our growth is really showing it. And it's, it's been our experience our entire career. That's cool. So was it, do you guys take a break after, you know, you sold the, the last company and then kind of decided, man, there's a need here for, for this. So let's, let's do this. Is that kind of what happened or what triggered so, it? So um, for me, I took a break for a short period of time to repair a broken bank in town. Mm-hmm. It was one that was under a consent order. Uh, helped that bank clean up its problem loan portfolio, recapitalized it, sold it to a majority owner, and then I um, was able to leave and start this new venture. That's cool. I didn't take a break. I was I lived the cycle. I was working for Regents Bank, who'd been acquired by a bank out of area up north in L.A., and mm-hmm. I watched it as the decision making and the just the centralization of of what that bank became took away the localness of our local bank that we're describing Hmm. and i had a yearning to get back to that and so that's when dan and i decided to do our thing that's cool and you guys do don't do residential mortgages is that right no we don't so is it correct to say that there's other banks like you that don't do residential mortgages i was at um our industry um, association event the california bankers association at that time and we were speaking to a panel of all the regulators the the federal regulators, the state regulators, the whole group, FDIC was there. And one of the local uh, community banks from Los Angeles, the CEO stood up and said, for God's sakes, communities in my name, and you've rigged the rules where I can't even make a a home loan anymore. Oh, wow. So the way the regulations are, it really makes it difficult for a boutique bank that's focused on business to be in that industry at all, which is why we're not in it. Wow. That's interesting. So our viewers as mortgage brokers could potentially create a relationship with guys like you or banks like you, and then basically refer you business and back and forth. And I would, I would say that's an absolute conduit for business for independent mortgage brokers, because every one of my clients, my business owners have a home, right? All, almost every one of them have a seven figure mortgage for that home. Right. And those people tend to, move up and change homes, buy a second home. That's a, that, right. that is an absolutely great uh, relationship to have. And they're entrepreneurs. So they, they may not always show, you know, the income that, you know, they're maybe starting up. So their income's low in the beginning, but they've got some good deposits, things like that. So I mean, they could be a good fit for our products. You, do you agree? I, I think it's a match made in heaven. <laughs> well, um, we'll definitely uh, talk more about how they can, you know, people can find you and how people can find, you know, banks like yours. Um, I want to talk a little bit about a um, couple things. Like we just did a podcast on cannabis. I know it's a touchy subject with banks because it's, it's illegal federally. You know, it's it's a banned substance. So um, I don't even know what if you guys could talk about it. But we know that there's bills on the house, and I'm not and I'm not pro or against this all all this. I just know it's an interesting topic because it's created problems for bank deposits for people who grow. Uh, they can't bring their money to the bank. If they do, they've got to report it, and then it, you know, goes to the IRS. And do you ever see people bring cash in? Is that even a thing these days, or is it everything not cash uh, in in banking? 
So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to broaden the response a little bit. Yeah. Everyone thinks dispensaries when they think cannabis. But right. the bigger issue for banks is any supplier to a dispensary. Right. So let's, Even say, a, yeah. let's say you're, you're providing the fertilizer to the growers. Yep. And a percentage of your revenues come from the ultimate dispensary. Yep. Well, you become an indirect cannabis um, company. Sure. And under the regulations, we have to monitor that cash just the same as if you were a dispensary. So then you get into the bigger issue, which is not so much do we have ethical issues with it or not. Right. It's that the Bank Secrecy Act is all about monitoring the source of the cash and coming into the bank system and where it's going. Mm -hmm. So if you bank any type of a cannabis company today, you have to file what's called a a cannabis SAR, which is a suspicious activity report. And the rules of fulfilling that responsibility and more importantly, the penalties for not doing it correctly and the amount of employees a bank must hire to fulfill that task wow. is economically not attractive for most banks. Right. So even though currently the Safe Banking Act is going through Congress and now it's under uh, review by the Senate, mm. even if that were to pass, it doesn't address the Bank Secrecy Act to <laughs> the degree it would probably need to right. to get more banks to opt in. Yeah. So it's really an economic issue. And a regulation in terms of how do we deal with the reporting of cash transactions. Right. So to your to your question, yes, we have lots of different types of companies that bring cash into banks. Mm-hmm. More rare today than ever. Um, we've become somewhat of a cashless society. Right. But there's still a huge percentage of the the retail uh, business community that does prefer to bring cash into banks. Yeah. And they present certain uh, problems for the business owner and for the banks. On the business side. If you're a cash-based business, you don't want armored showing up because the concern is maybe someone will rob me if they know I have cash. Right. And on the bank side, we have to deal with accounting of that cash and the storage of it, transportation to the Federal Reserve and so forth. So there's more labor on our side. There's more reporting to do. And as a result of all the above, fewer and fewer companies today uh, do transactions in cash. Mm. But Dan, wouldn't you say it's a matter of when, not if, that we work through, the industry works through all of that and that the cannabis industry comes into the to the true banking environment? Yeah, because if the states have already approved, right, and, and they're they're legalizing it, not just for medical purposes, but recreational purposes, then it there's a there's a huge money laundering problem, right? I mean it's so more recently one of the setbacks for the Safe Banking Act has been the uh, the deaths caused from vaping. Mm-hmm. and they're trying to figure out the cause of it. Mm-hmm. They have some suspects, but they really haven't figured it out. And so that's in the last two or three weeks. It was moving through the Congress pretty quickly, and then um, they tapped the brakes to study what is causing uh, vaping. The vaping, uh, vaping yeah. deaths. Interesting. It's, it's crazy what's going on. I mean, we're in, a, in an interesting time politically, you know, with, with it, it's almost like a prohibition, right? It, it really is. It's It's a similar time. I mean, I know, you know, alcohol was previously legal and then it was banned and then it came back and you know i i don't know if there was the same banking problems back then when you know it came back but i think with with cannabis being that it's such a new thing but it's they're working their way through it it's going to be challenging for banks and so there's got to be i'm sure you guys hear about this there's got to be something that's going back in the background right with congress with the senate with banking regular you know regulatory issues i mean it's a really interesting issue to study if you look yeah. at the uh, the the bank, the cannabis stocks in Canada have been dropping lately. Really? And because they're I, publicly traded in Canada, right? Well, they're publicly traded, but I think what happened is both in California, Canada, and other states, 
the amount of taxes attached to the legal sale of cannabis compared to the traditional black market is so wide that only certain segments of the population will go to the legal dispensaries. Mm. And then when you go to the black market, um, the consistency of the quality of what you're buying compared to, say, 30 years ago, you didn't hear about as many uh, deaths or the uh, right. ramifications of certain marijuana strains. Right. And now with the vaping, uh, here in San Diego, several communities have outlawed the sale of vape. Yep. And so we're trying to work through that as a country, both on the ethnic side and the health and safety of the populace, and then on the tax base. You tax it to the point that it drives people back, uh, people under. back to yeah. the black market. All of that is under scrutiny now when you look at these laws going through Congress. Such an interesting time. It's, it's crazy. Um, so let's talk about economics. Let's talk about um, cycles. You know, in my opinion, uh, from what I've, when I got into the mortgage business, which was 22 years ago, uh, there was some time like right up until the dot-com bubble that, um, you know, there's some expansion in loan products and things like that. And there was some, uh, it, it went from, you know, your basic products, your loan products to some more exotic products. And that Really, in, in, and I think you know when 2001 happened, when the dot com bubble burst, there was maybe some movement of capital that went from the stock markets and, and things like that over to say maybe mortgage backed securities, and then there was this explosion in mortgage backed securities, and all these lo loan products came out. It feels a lot like that time to us because of you know the pullback in loan products, and then you know all of a sudden you know new loan products have come out, and there's expansions. It hasn't gotten, you know, it hasn't swayed back to you know, obviously the two, you know, the mid two thousands where it was crazy, right? Stated income, no, no down payments, no, no assets, no verification. It was just like you can fog a mirror and you get a loan uh, with zero down. It's it's a lot different now. It's a lot safer. It's the mortgages are still pretty strict, but we have loosened somewhat, you know, from there. Where do you think we are in our economic cycle? Um, with that said. Well, if you're talking about the differences in loan products compared to today versus mid-cycle, um, I do find it interesting that we're approving loans based on biz, uh, bank statements yeah. as opposed to tax looking returns. at tax returns, doing it the old, we, we call it the old-fashioned banker's model of cash flow right. um, ratios, expense to income ratios, um, the old-fashioned approach. Um, to me, that's loosening up in, right. a, in, a, in a way. so. Um, it, it resembles, has some reflection of what the way it was back then. Yep. Um, but I do agree with you. There's, it's not anywhere near it was what it was back then. Back then, I was scratching my head saying, "What, what are we doing?" I was banking right. some independent mortgage brokers just on a deposit base, and you saw what they made. And, and, well, no, I, I listened to them. They didn't. They weren't for what was going on. They right. were being required to do more and more and more um, no doc loans by right. by their warehouse lenders mm. to get the volume up. Right. So I don't see those things happening. Right. I don't see that pressure top down like I saw back then. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't think we're going to create the bubble in any way, shape, or form like we like we did back then. But, but I do see some flexing up on on underwriting terms. Yeah. Right. Does that does that make you feel like we're in a in in some kind of bubble? In in I mean I don't think that we have a, a real estate bubble necessarily. I know that you know the crash brought it down then. You know, a lot of places kind of came back to where it was pre-crash. Um, but, we're, you know, are you seeing, do you think there's some weakness in the real estate market? 
So, you know, we've been through so many cycles in our career. Right. And I think the Great Recession that was most recently, the one we all lived through, I doubt we'll see anything that severe in our lifetimes again, at least in my career. Right. But certainly we all subscribe to different newsletters and we try to keep track of how long, for example, homes are on the market before they sell mm -hmm. and what the current listings are going out for. And so you're seeing signs throughout San Diego County where we operate of a bit of slowness in the local sure. real estate economy. Offsetting that on the refinance side, when the Fed lowered rates, every ad in the, in the news right now seems to be, <laughs> when's the last time you took a look at your interest rate and your mortgage? Right. So there's a bit of a spike when you have a lowering of rates right. to create activity. But when we, when we spend most of our time is with the uh, business owners. Okay. And I think there's a, depending on what industry, there's some tapping of the brakes for expanding operations, buying equipment, doing mm -hmm. the things you might do when you feel more confident yep. about where the economy's going. Do you think that has to do with the election year coming up and just uh, the uncertainty of where you know, we've, we have obviously have some division in the country with economic, or not economics, with politics. Do you think it has anything to do with that, like the upcoming election? It, it feels to me that's a couple things. One is the inverted yield curve, yep. and everyone seems to be pointing to the historical probability that inverted yield curves lead to a recession. Recession, yeah. And that's made front page news. Right. There's been the political jockeying between the Federal Reserve and the president about yeah. lowering rates. What does all that mean? Right. There have been some pretty significant tax impacts to California and a lot of citizens leaving our state yep. uh, in search of greener pastures. Yeah, or cheaper gas, maybe. Cheaper <laughs> gas. So there's there are some political overtones uh, yeah. as to how people feel about our particular state yep. and, the, and the cost of living here and the regulations that go with that. Right. So there's a lot of factors that go into it. I think you got to throw in trade. I think the trade issues are are causing people to pause. but I think the tapping on the brakes that Dan just described is a slowing down. I listen to Bloomberg every day, okay, and I get a pretty good dose of nationally and internationally, you know, where the trends are going, what what the people that are supposed to know mm -hmm. say are going to happen. And I I do think that there's definitely a slowing down, but I think that there's enough strength in the economy and the fundamentals of profitability of companies in general mm -hmm. that and my clients locally from a from a micro look. I'm just not seeing the weakness in my clients that, um, you know, you hear a lot of people talking about in terms right. of, of slowdown. So I think there's still legs left in this cycle. Mm -hmm. um, just the sheer length of the cycle by itself is something to, to cause you to pause S and say, wow, we haven't seen this in a long time. Exactly. Right? And, and Dan mentioned that inverted yield curve. For me, that's the biggie because, you know, you're, you know yield curves don't lie. What does that mean? Like, we break that down, uh, the yield curve. Just some of our viewers might not understand why that sure. causes recession. Well, if you think about it, if, if a, a, a rate on an instrument, anything you're investing, let's, let's call it a one-week one CD okay. versus a 10-year CD. Right. The rate on a one-week CD at your bank should be a lot lower than right. the rate on the 10-year CD. It sure should. Or the rate on a one-year loan should be a lot lower than the rate on a 10-year loan. Right. But it's upside down. The long-term yield is lower than the short-term yield that's you know, a 30 year fix cheaper than a 5-1 arm right that's now. A, that's a <laughs> that's an inversion or an yeah. upside down yield curve it's, yeah. it's out of kilter and what that's telling you is the long-term bet isn't as strong as the short-term bet people that that would bet long are not comfortable why <laughs> why are they uncomfortable they they see recession out on the horizon so right. people are betting with their money and the yield curve is reflecting that interesting
And just to add to that, I think most people don't realize that short-term rates are more political and long-term rates are more market-driven. Got it. So when you hear the president and the Federal Reserve chairman having debates about the president saying we need to lower rates, yep. okay, that's a political decision that the Federal Reserve governors make. Yes, they should draw upon economic uh, guidance in making that decision, but it's, a lot of it is politics. Yeah. Long-term rates, 30, you know, the treasury market's 30-year, that's mostly driven by economics mm-hmm. of what the market demands to get in exchange for taking the long-term risk. Right. So when you have an inverted yield, inverted yield curve, you're dealing with some political aspects and decision-making that different Federal Reserve governors over the years have seen it um, different from their peers. So it used to be that you would read the notes, try to get a prediction of what they're thinking. Were they concerned about inflation? Were they concerned about uh, interest rates and how they're going to affect the economy? There are all kinds of issues you could try to decipher their notes. Yeah. And in the last couple of uh, cycles, we've had more transparency with the media and and disclosing the Fed notes earlier. Mm. Try to telegraph to the markets what's coming. Right. So right now, with the recent drop in rates, that uh, inverted yield curve is starting to get more in proportion to where it should be. Mm -hmm. But there's still signs that it's inverted out there. And this is a timely conversation because we're going to have a quarter point drop this week. Yep. So, you know, I, I would bet my pink slip on that. And <laughs> I would bet pretty strongly that we'll see another quarter point before the end of the year. I mean, and talking about what Dan was saying, they're telegraphing those, those moves and more, with more transparency than ever before. And I think wow. that's a good thing. Wow. And I think yesterday the headlines were that we hit an all-time high in the S&P. Mm-hmm. Usually that happens when they're reading the same tea leaves that, Steve's betting his pink slip on. So they think there's going to be a rate drop too. Yeah, no, that's, that's very interesting. I mean, so, I mean, that, that tells me like, don't lock rates, right? <laughs> Just let them float for another. Well, you, it, it, this cycle, I, I'm seeing that the banks, both on the funding side and the funding side are what we, what we uh, pay on deposit, right. CDs, money markets. And then also on the lending side, on lines of credit rates, commercial real estate loans, we're, we're in a bit of a flux. Um, I don't see the deposit rates lining out, matching the rate reductions yet. I think there's there's still quite a bit of room to be let out of deposit rates before it catches up with where they should be. Mm-hmm. Um, loan rates, loan rates are screaming down. So there's yeah. a lot of competition between banks to do loans, and I'm seeing, uh, and I'm speaking on the commercial side because right. that's where we lend. Right. Um, and I'm sure you would see, see the same on the home lending yeah. side, yeah. single family home side. Um, the rates are just screaming down, and it's a it's a great opportunity for borrowers. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that you know, and we're going into the winter, right? The months that are slower for mortgage brokers, but it's not slowing down. You know, there's refis going. There's people that want cash out. There's all kinds of stuff happening right now. So I think um, you you touched on a point about politics and about you know um, some of this is being tied to that, like with Trump saying you know we should have lower interest rates. You know. The, you know, the Japanese market or the German, you know, all these different markets have zero or low, low interest rates. What, what do you think is his reason for saying the Fed should lower rates? Well, he started that about a year ago, right about this time. And if you think about it a year ago, the Fed was pretty firm on raising rates. Nobody would have bet this time a year ago that, that we would be looking at the rate reductions we'd seen. I think he was proven right. I think he was, he was complaining about what, what, transpired that we needed to we lower need to rates. have a, a level playing field right with with competition and and i i think 
the Fed may have overreacted in moving rates up. They've done it plenty of times in the past, and right. it looked like they did it again, and they're undoing that now. Now, they're responding to the data that they're looking at, right. the data based on inflation, the data based on employment, the data based on a heating up economy, mm-hmm. and that's what they were seeing, and that's why they're supposed to be moving rates up. Right. And that's the political piece Dan's referring to. And the president, you know, he, his politics are directly related to if they slow the economy down too much. Yeah, and that's the if part. If there's why, a big recession, it's going to hurt his chance of re-election. And that's the part—the politics of why he's screaming about it. But I, I think that you know that inverted yield curve is telling you that rates, short-term rates, should be lower. Yeah, and they're heading lower. Yeah, interesting. So, do you think we'll see a, a reversal of the the in, inverted yield curve? Do you think that absolutely? Yeah, I can answer that anytime. <laughs> but the question is when. When? Yeah, that's I the crystal I ball, right? <laughs> I can't tell you that. <laughs> that's interesting stuff. Um, so what um when the crash happened there was so much regulation that came down on on guys like us mortgage broker mortgages you know the small lot of small mortgage broker shops went out of business you know even small lenders went out of business the uh the regulations just became so cumbersome for for lenders and I'm sure for banks right so uh you know, CFPB, all that, you know, the, the different regulatory bodies that were put into place. Do you see a loosening at all of regulations on banking, either now or coming? <laughs> Dad's flipping it to me. <laughs> no, I don't. You think that it's just the, the regulations are, are there are good? I mean, this is a oh, good boy. <laughs> don't, don't throw me that red meat. <laughs> so, well, I guess like, the question is, is is it cumbersome to you guys as a bank, as a small bank competing against like a chase with with all the regulations that are that are in? So if, if you listen to the presidential debates, at least on the Democratic side, there with Elizabeth Warren in particular, right? She's definitely um, she's been very outspoken that she believes we need to bring back regulations that the president uh, about a year out. ago with Congress um, rolled back. Most of the rollback. Um, did not really make a dent in our world on the commercial side, okay. you know. But going back to a statement you made earlier about all these um, smaller mortgage brokers that went away, mm-hmm. maybe in some cases that was um, for other reasons than regulations. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I saw during the uh, stated income period when those who were helping to underwrite the loans and approve the loans maybe were trying to help borrowers get into products they should not have been in. Sure, and they yeah. and that hurt a lot of good people. And I think we've brought integrity back to the mortgage space. Yes. And I think it was well needed. Yep. And I think in the long run, it, it helps uh, those who are running an ethical business yep. and the borrowers they're, they're lending to. So I don't have a problem with certain regulations. Um, I know for myself personally, when I've sought to get a mortgage loan, um, the rules are problematic in how you prove the source of, for example, a deposit. Right. And it, it gets a little bit ridiculous. So there's some areas to still be. Uh, you know, worked at. on, yeah, but it's better than I think we were at the uh, at the height of some of the problem loans that originated, right? But back in those days, if they would have implemented the regulations that were already there, wouldn't they have stopped a lot of this? I think so. So, is, are more regulations the answer? I, I I look at my business, and we have more and more regulations, and I'm not sure they're they're achieving the desired goal. Right. I think you throw bad actors in jail. Yeah, that that deters some some and and they didn't do that out of this last downturn. That was a stated public policy of the administration that we're not going to put people in jail. It'll be bad for the economy. 
I think you enforce the regulations that are there and the people that don't follow the regulations that cheat and do Break bad law, things, yeah. you put them in jail. Right. Well, if you, if you, you know, we went back uh, to the days when community banks made mortgages. You knew your borrowers. You saw them on the weekends. You went to ballparks with them. Right. Then we came to a period of time where we had boiler rooms set up for subprime lending, mm -hmm. sending out flyers where you never even knew who the people were on the other side of the phone. Right. And I think there's, there's room in the middle where yeah. if mortgage brokers take the time to really get to know who they're lending to, mm -hmm. then Steve's right. It's not so much about the regulations as really trying to do an ethical job right. of helping people get into a loan that deserve to mm -hmm. and not encouraging someone to get into a negative arm right. where, where you're, you're not even paying the, uh, the interest on the loan. Sure. And then all of a sudden, you end up owing more than the home's worth. And I, I saw several people that I knew file bankruptcy because they thought they were going to buy a home, uh, improve it, flip it before the interest rates uh, cycled up. Right. And they were just naive. Yeah, and they yeah. didn't they didn't have education. I mean, yeah. that's that that same loan is actually like a reverse mortgage and right. they give it to elderly people, but they have to give them a lot of education about it. Correct. And it's there's a reason for why they're getting that Nagam loan. They don't call a, a, a what they call them heckam, a home equity conversion mortgage. They don't call that a Nagam, but it's a Nagam loan. But it, regulations exactly what it is. creep in when ethics creep out. Right. It's so true. had we not try to help people get loans that we knew probably they should not have been. Oh yeah. We, there was so we much have going on. Congress coming and trying to teach us how to do ethics. Right. True. So uh, you mentioned Elizabeth Warren earlier. Um, if she were to get elected, how would you think that would affect banking and, and real estate? From what I've, when I've read about her uh, platform, she believes that the largest banks in the country are too big and yep. have too much power. And I think she would advocate for breaking them up into smaller pieces. Yeah. So the too big to fail. There was not enough accountability for the largest banks CEOs. Sure. Um, there was, didn't they get bigger after the crash? They got bigger. Um, I don't think she is after community banks like Endeavor. Right. But if if you were the CEO of say a Chase or a Wells, mm -hmm. I think her election could have some impact on your organization. Right. If, if she's able to push through some of her ideas. Right. Uh, but she seems to be a, a friend of the smaller banks in the country, credit unions. Yep. How does that, how does that compare with Trump? Is Trump opposite of that, or is he is he more uh, pro big banks, pro big big companies, or would you say there's a there's a similarity in with him and and her in that? Well, aspect? Trump has been advocating for fewer regulations, yeah, and has pushed through um, not just in banking but other industries less regulation. Right. Sometimes. Uh, on the other side of the aisle, you would argue that we'd need regulations to protect right. the environment or other issues that he's trying to roll back. Right. So there's a happy medium, I'm sure. Sure. But I think we went so far in one direction with regulations that Trump tried to pull it back. Try to bring uh, back the pendulum yeah, a little so bit. So there, yeah. there's definitely a difference in what's the right Yeah, I mean, I think we, we've seen in historically with the country, uh, big companies, be they've been broken up back, you know, back with, uh, you know, um, the trust busters yeah, in the, trust in the busters. early 1900s. Yeah, was that good for our, our country? Well, I think if you look at the net worths of those big families. trust families, they ended up with more money after the busting of the tr of, of the trust than before. So, I'm not sure that they, um, you know, I, monopolies are not good, right? And regardless of what you're talking about, so it's a matter of of the right type of regulation. And, and I'm not sure I, that's a, that may be above my pay grade. I'll let other people hash that out. Right. But I want to get back to some of the moves that Trump made that 
um, I don't think affected us directly in the, as far as the community banking industry. So to answer your direct question, I, I think it, he didn't really have an effect at all. But when it comes to um, reducing the tax rate, uh, the, what, the changes in the depreciation schedules, uh, reducing regulation, although I'm not sure how much that really happened. I, I think it right. was an attempt. I think those things were good for business and have been good for this business cycle. And I think you're seeing it in this continued uh, long, long cycle we're in. Right. But then on the other side, the trade issues, I think, have some real uh, negative impact on our clients. And a lot, of, uh, a lot of your clients might be getting product from China, right? Right. But I think it's, it's important that somebody, you know, I think China, those issues have to be addressed. And yeah. we got to bite the bullet at some point. So I'm supportive of making China play fair. Right. Yeah. The, Steve mentions taxes. The, the problem I've had over the years with our tax code, and it was true under the Trump uh, you know, tax reform bill, is not all states are treated equally. Mm. So if you're in California, where homes cost decidedly more than other parts of the country, and you limit the mortgage interest rate deduction, that affects Californian homeowners right. much more so than, say, a state like Tennessee. Oh, yeah. So how we deal with the disparity of income and the cost of living in, say, Northern California, Silicon Valley, San Francisco, where U-Hauls are primarily leaving, uh, mass exodus from California. Right. On balance, uh, yes, I would say corporations benefited from fewer taxes, but homeowners in certain states, New York, California, definitely were impacted adversely. Absolutely. I just took a loan request from a business owner yesterday to help him relocate to Reno. Really? Uh, it, it breaks my heart. I mean, yeah. we we're talking a lot about federal. We, I really, conversation should be about State. Sacramento. Yeah. Sacramento. I, I often say that my biggest competitor is not the bank across the street. It's Sacramento driving my clients out of the state. Out of the state. Yeah. I mean, I was just in Austin, Texas. It's booming. I was just in Nashville. Booming. These, these cities are just blowing up because, and a lot of people there are saying they're Californians moving in. There's New Yorkers moving in. There's, you know, people from all these, these, you know, these big states that have these crazy taxes, right? And like, I mean, I, I just saw the gas was like two twenty a gallon. Here is like four twenty. It's just, it's like twice as expensive. And you know, I mean, it's like there comes a point where weather only has so much impact on you. You know, it's like we have air conditioning. We have, you know, we have uh, travel. It's easy to travel if you want to go on vacation somewhere nice. So. Yeah, I think that's a problem. I think a lot of the business owners don't want to, you know, they want to, they like being here, but then at some point they're like, we can't, we got to move out of the state. So that's very, yeah, very I'm, uh, I'm fighting it in my own family. I mean, I, I love San Diego. I plan on retiring here and living here the rest of my life, but yeah. my 20, 20 something and 30 something kids that are starting their lives, you know, they're looking how hard it's going to be with the taxes, with the schooling and the, yeah. all, it's across the board. Right. Um, with what Sacramento's doing. It's not, it's not helpful. Are they, there's got to be data out there about how many people are leaving the state. Do you know, is it, is it? Well, our former local economist, Art Laffer has written quite a few books on that. One of them is rich state, poor state. And I've forgotten the latest book that he's written. You can Google his name. He, he gets a little political to say the least. So yeah. you've got to take him with a grain of salt, but right. He's got a lot of data about what's happening um, among the states, the states with low tax rates versus high tax rates. Yep. I don't think you can refute the data that he's got. Um, so is, is there anything you want to leave with us? I mean, our viewers, mortgage brokers, loan officers, people trying out to go get big loans, million-dollar loans. 
obviously we talked about getting referrals from guys like you. Uh, anything you want to leave our viewers that you think could be helpful for them with their businesses? Do, do, do uh, mortgage brokers need business loans for their, to grow their business? I, I think what Steve and I have found when we're dealing with entrepreneurs is giving them suggestions and ideas of how to qualify for the loan that they need is helpful. You understand the rules of the game. They don't. They don't play with those numbers every day. So they're out there usually trying to minimize their tax burden. Right. And the decisions they will make, legal and otherwise sometimes, to minimize their tax burden can be counter to their goal to get a home loan. Right. Or to get the best home loan rate. Right. And I think helping um, consult with them and their CPAs and other advisors to make sure that if they really want to qualify for the best loan, they have to be willing to pay Uncle Sam something, or sure. if there's a path to help identify the source of that income, whether it's bank statements or otherwise, helping them understand what tools you need, mm -hmm. I think they find helpful. Do you guys work a lot with CPAs as well? And like, sure, uh, CPAs are one of the closest relationships that we have. Okay. Um, the other piece, or uh, that's really growing uh, and and expanding in this region. Fractional uh, CFO, fractional accounting. Mm -hmm. Instead of a business owner growing their own accounting group, trying to hire their own CFO, hiring a company that does it on a fractional basis. There's right. lots of players in town that do that. But I want to connect to something else more broadly. In spite of what's going on in Washington, in spite of what's going on in Sacramento, we spend a little bit of time here complaining about that. Right. I'm, I'm extremely optimistic. I mean, just look at uh, how people vote with their feet. Yep. People are literally dying to get here. Yeah. They're dying to get here from all countries in the world. It's our freedom and it's our capitalistic economy, free markets that make people want to come here. And in spite of the problems, in spite of the concerns that we've talked about, I'm still extremely optimistic and bullish. I mean, look at, look at where we live. Yeah. This is a thriving economy. There's a thriving business community. We can all have a great quality of life, and I, I just, I love it here. I love yeah. San Diego. I love this market, and I think we all have a great opportunity to do well. I agree 100%. I've traveled a lot, so I have firsthand knowledge that when you go to these, these other countries and you talk to them about America, I mean, they may not like Trump or they may not, may not like certain things about America, but they do respect, you know, the business side and the freedoms that we have, and, you know, so I think a lot of people who might just jump to, you know, parrot things that are on the news they haven't traveled maybe or they haven't seen the differences between our freedom and another country's lack of so I, I agree with that i listened to a podcast that you had a while back about all the noise that's out there in marketing yep. and almost all of your listeners are trying to find clients yep. and i think most ceos and entrepreneurs in general are just overwhelmed by the noise and i think building trust and finding potential clients in friendlier places where you're not caught up in that noise right. could be very helpful to them. So community banks that cater to the business community are a good way to build relationships where you get an introduction, mm. push the noise aside, and when you bring that relationship referral into that conversation, bring it with trust, knowledge, right. information, not just leading with rates and a good time to refinance. Sure. Yeah, and you build clients for life right. by doing that because you add value, and it's not just about the interest rate. You can get an interest rate yeah. from anywhere in any you know online little search, but when you have, especially with million dollar clients, you've got 
you know, you've got to build that trust. You've got to build that relationship. I think people value that. Thank you guys for coming in and sharing your, uh, your thoughts and your ideas and telling us about Endeavor Bank. This is, this is a great bank. We actually bank with you. So that's, uh, that's, a, that's a, cool, uh, it's a cool thing that you guys started and it's an exciting time that we're, we're living in right now, right? It's interesting. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Please like, share, and subscribe. Don't forget, and we'll see you on the next podcast and episode. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you guys are looking for more content like this, we have a Fun Loans YouTube channel where we give away more tips, secrets, and origination ideas. You can also email us at info at funloans.com. And if you've made it this far, I think it's safe to say you like our content. So please subscribe, share, and send us your scenarios. Let's Fun Loans together.